1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and um, this is going to be a, uh, a message that uh, is going to be sort of challenging a little bit, as you can sort of see from the title and maybe from the graphic, is it up there, yeah, uh, maybe challenging your mind a little bit this morning, but uh, I hope this, the, the, the word doesn't throw you off, it's, it's calibrating is the word there, calibrating the conscience, if you want to know why I just said that, ask me later, because I promise not to embarrass anybody this morning. Uh, but calibrating your conscience, calibrating the conscience. I have spoken before, I believe it was either on a Wednesday evening or a Sunday school, on the conscience, on guilt and the conscience. This would be sort of, if you were, if you were heard that or you remember that, this would be sort of like a part two to that. This would be sort of continuing on that thought. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, so let me, give me just a minute and introduction and sort of catch you up to speed on that idea of the conscience. Most people think the conscience is uh, the, little, the little bad gronk on this, on this shoulder and the little angel gronk. Any, any fans of Emperor's New Groove this morning? Nobody? Okay, I'm getting crickets out there, okay? The little, the little angel on one side and the little demon on the other side. You've seen that in cartoons represented. I always thought that movie was funny, so that was the best portrayal of that little thing. So they think that their conscience is that. Of course, we have the Disney idea of the conscience. Remember Jiminy Cricket? You know, let your conscience be your guide. And, uh, and that is what they think is supposed to, oh, they're going to give you some good advice every now and again, but it's really not that important. Um, every human, let me start out with this, every human, every person made in the image of God is made with a conscience. Okay? And in the church world, I think that um, part of this has happened because uh, Christians have confused the conscience with the Holy Spirit. And so after coming to Christ and after being in the church, many sort of when they're thinking about and, and talking about really what the conscience is, they're just talking, they, they refer to the Holy Spirit as that's the Holy Spirit. Let me just start off by saying that the Holy Spirit is received by the Christian upon conversion. And if you're here this morning and you're sort of wondering still about conversion... This is the idea of, of Christ and what we're talking about on Sunday nights really going through the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ came to this earth and suffered as a sinful man for your sins. Because there was a debt, there was a penalty that you couldn't pay. There was a gap. You know, it's interesting to me about when you start thinking about those who uh, are in heaven and those who are in hell I think a lot of people, especially in our society, think that the good people are in heaven and the bad people are in hell. I think that that, uh, it's sort of adverse to their thinking that there are no good people in heaven. There's no good people in heaven. Because there's no good that that... The whole reason that we are in heaven is because we were bad and we needed redemption. That's the only way we were able to get to heaven. And so God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and He paid that penalty, taking those sins upon Him at the cross, and then rose again on the third day. And then as you go through the, as you go through the New Testament, you find that if we simply believe and repent of our sins, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came and died for your sins, then you can become a child of God. And so upon that situation, if you're here there, I would, if you're here today and you're still confused about that, I would encourage you to, to do that this morning. Believe, repent of your sins, and believe on Jesus Christ. But at that point of conversion, you receive the Holy Spirit. 
You had a conscience before you received the Holy Spirit. And you have a conscience after you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? Stay with me here. Romans 2, 14 and 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So here, Paul tells us in Romans that before you become a Christian, your conscience is already accusing you. Those who we would deem the most wicked of society, those that are participating in sins that we just are disgusted at, it's it's important to understand... They have a conscience that accuses them. Now we're going to get into talking a little bit. We'll we'll run through the idea of a seared conscience and and denying your conscience. So what is the conscience? The conscience is a witness. It accuses or defends. Uh, MacArthur in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, gives an illustration about a uh, a flight, uh, a South American uh, airliner that was flying and this, this flight was going on, and there was heavy fog, but this pilot was an experienced pilot. He had flown many times, even through that region. And the, fi- the, 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 the button starts, they, they found this on the black box afterwards, that the, the, the little red light started dinging. It was like beeping and beeping and beeping. And then next, he had a voice coming through, a little automated voice on the plane. It said, pull up, pull up, pull up. And the last thing that you heard on the black box was the pilot saying, shut up, gringo, and flip the switch. And that plane crashed right into a mountain. And everybody on the plane died. See, the, the conscience is your warning system. It is to the soul what pain is to the body. Now, a couple of things about the conscience. No two people have exactly the same conscience. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means there's going to be differences on where we have our beliefs and where we say this is where we draw the line. No two people have the same conscience. If we did, we wouldn't need Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Next, no one conscience perfectly matches God's will. Wait, what? Well, think about it. If no person's con- no two people's conscience are exactly the same, and God's truth is perfect, that means that our conscience is not exactly perfectly in line with God's Word. Hence the title of the message this morning, Calibrating Your Conscience. All right, so that's, that's sort of the direction we're going. This is the, this is the funny thing we find, with, especially with Christians, right? We assume that ours does. We go on the assumption that our conscience is perfectly in line with God's Word. We automatically go and live and say, yep, this is how I live. My conscience convicts me of this. Therefore, I'm the one doing it right. Hence where we get so much legalism in Christianity today. To strengthen your conscience, you need to feed it with the revealed moral law of God. The more information the conscience has, the better. Now, how does society react to this? How does secular society react to this? 
Well, now we've moved into a direction now where society attacks it with two objectives. Number one, destroy the moral law so the conscience is not informed. This is where postmodernism came. You cannot have any abject standard of truth. If truth can exist, then your truth is truth for you, and this person's truth is truth for them. Therefore, if your conscience is convicting you, it's because somebody has inflicted their truth on you, and therefore you should ignore it. So what do you do? What is the whole idea of that that belief system? Get rid of a strict standard of moral absolution. So, in other words... Explain this away or toss it in the garbage. Number two, their, their reaction to this is to tell you that your conscience is a liar. The world wants to misinform the conscience and desensitize it. Paul describes a destroyed conscience in Philippians 3.19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. So, this brings us to our first point. Our first point is sort of what you were probably thinking we've just been doing in the introduction, and that is defining the conscience. Alright? So, defining the conscience. Alright? In the New Testament, the conscience translates as the word, and I'm going to butcher this, syndiasis. Yeah, that's not how it's pronounced, but that's the best I can do this morning. Syndiasis, it is a word that occurs 30 times in the New Testament. Uh, The conscience is spoken of positively in two ways and negatively in six ways. So how is it referred to in the New Testament? Positively, first, the conscience can be good in the sense of being blameless, being clear, being clean, and being pure. Uh, you can find these in Acts 23.1, 1 Peter 3.16. Number two, the conscience can be cleansed, that is, cleared or perfected or purified or washed, purged, and sprinkled clean. Hebrews 9.9, 9, 14, and Hebrews 10.22 all speak of these types of things. So positively, your conscience, what is this informing us? It's informing us that if our conscience is corrupted, if our conscience is on the wrong end of the spectrum, it can be cleansed. It can be brought back into alignment. Alright, so how is it, is it spoken of in the New Testament negatively? It is spoken of negatively, and this is where we're at 1 Corinthians 8. So are you with me in 1 Corinthians 8? Alright, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here we go. Now concerning, verse number 1, things offered to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Watch what Paul does. He then goes into a warning about knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Meaning, knowledge can bring pride. But love edifies. Verse 2, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things. And we are for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Verse 7, However, there is not in everyone 
that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. All right, so let me explain to you sort of what's going on here. So, of course, this is the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church of Corinth. Uh, If you've heard any sort of Bible preaching that comes to this book, you sort of know uh, by now that this is considered the carnal church. The church had all kinds of problems going on, like some major, major issues. And so Paul is trying to straighten them out with many things. I mean, you talk about like a casserole dish of teaching. It's in 1 Corinthians, okay? And so... What they experienced during this time was that you had the Romans and their pagan gods. Not just the Romans, but many pagan religions. What they would do is they had idols, right? And so you'd take your idol and you fashion your little idol and you say, this is my God. In fact, they would actually go to the market. And they'd go to the market and they would go into like a little shop. And they'd see all these different little idols and they'd say, ooh, what's that? And the little shopkeeper would say, oh, that is the God of this. And they'd say, ooh, what's that? Oh, that's the God of this. And so if they had enough money, they'd buy this idol and that idol, and then they go pray to it. I mean, that's how they treated gods. Well, especially when the Romans came in, this was, became a, a whole lot more prevalent thing in society, especially that, that pressed upon the Jews. Because what they would do is they'd have this huge feast, sort of like what we did last week, right? But instead of gathering around and eating it, what they do, imagine this, they take every bit of that food before even the three-year-old little mason could stick his finger in the dessert. <laughs> yeah, we're always smacking that hand away. All right. uh, they take all of that food and they lay it out right under where the idol is. And they say, we're offering this feast to the idols. And so the idols would eat like half of it. No. The idols couldn't eat a single thing, and they knew that. So they are like, all right, I, I wonder how long they waited. I don't know, maybe they just said a prayer and said, all right, <laughs> us. And so they, after they do that, they take all of that food, and then they just have a feast and gorge themselves on it. And for the Jew, this was highly offensive, to the point where if you found later that they were selling some of the, the leftover desserts or whatever, the food that didn't spoil that bad or wasn't eaten, and you were poor, starving, and they were selling it at a price that you could have it, you would not dare touch it. Why? Because that's food offered to idols. Now Christ comes, dies on the cross, raises again. New covenant has been put in place. And now the gospel is going out. You've got people coming in all over the place. Gentiles are being saved and added to the church. Did a Gentile have any qualms about eating something that was offered to an idol? Nope, that's a perfectly good drumstick. I'm going to take it out. <laughs> you know, and they chow down. Now imagine you're sitting there and you're hanging out with your new church family and you grab that drumstick and they say, <gasps> And so these are some of the situations that's going on. And so you have some people that just can't stand this. This bugs them. And then you have some people say, wait a second, I can eat food offered to idols? And so they're going and they're doing it right in front of the people that it bugs. And so Paul's trying to give them some teaching in here. So we said that the conscience is mentioned in the New Testament six ways negatively. The first one is that the conscience can be weak. Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened 
to eat those things offered to idols. All right? Was it a sin to eat food offered to idols in the early church? The answer to that question is no. It was not a sin. But here Paul gives a warning to someone doing it in front of a brother or sister in Christ that has a weak conscience. So, you have some in the church who have a weak conscience. Number two, the conscience can be wounded. Look at verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Number three, the conscience can be defiled. Look at verse 7. However, there's not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Uh, Number four, uh, the conscience can be encouraged and emboldened to sin. He said that in verse number 10 that we read. He said, who is weak being emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And number five, the conscience can be evil or guilty. Hebrews 10.22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then number six, the conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. This is what many of you are familiar with, the First Timothy passage. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, though the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. The conscience can change. Your conscience can change. Now that's important, because what did Paul teach them there in 1 Corinthians 8? Was it a sin for them to eat food offered to idols? We established this. Was it? No, it wasn't. But if they did it and offended a weaker brother, was it a sin then? Yes. So, because why? What did they do? They offended their conscience. But now we understand that a conscience can change. The conscience functions as a guide, a monitor, a witness, and judge. The conscience is, here it is, your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Understand that. Okay? That's, that's key right there as moving forward when we're understanding this idea of calibrating the conscience. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Now, you say, well, John, everything I believe is right and wrong is based on the Bible. Awesome. I bet if I talked to you for about an hour, I could find you saying the things were right and wrong that I couldn't find a Bible verse for. Okay? It's what we believe is right and wrong. There are, come on, let's be honest. There are a lot of areas out there that we come into contact with in our everyday lives that the Bible doesn't have an explicit verse on. And we have beliefs about those things. And if you doubt me, I've got a long list we're going to get to at the end that'll just trigger you, okay? Some of you don't like that word, and I just did it, all right? Triggered you. Okay, anyways, let's move on. All right, so what is calibrating our conscience? What is calibrating our conscience? How important is it to have a good conscience? So let me ask you this question. Would you lose your job over your conscience? 
if your job puts you into a position or your boss asks you to do something that your conscience was convicting you of that's saying, no, this is wrong. But you know that if you don't do it, you're either going to be isolated from anything moving up or you could lose your job. Is that important enough for you? All right, let's get a little bit more serious. Is your conscience worth you going to jail over? We've seen that. Can I be honest with you without going into detail? We've seen that in our country in the past in recent years where somebody thought that violating their conscience they couldn't do something and they did go to jail. And I disagreed with them. I, I still to this day think that they were in the wrong. But to them, their conscience was being violated and so they took a, took a stand and they went to jail. So is that important enough for you? Martin Luther believed it was. Martin Luther believed that maintaining a good conscience was worth going to prison for and even dying for. He said this whenever he was before the, the uh, Diet of Worms and they were accusing him of, of uh, writing these, these heretical teachings and asked him if he believed these things that he had written and he asked for time and then after 24 hours they brought him back in and this is what we have. He says this, quote, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. For they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. He believed, and rightly so, that by saying those very words, his life was over. In fact, many that study the life of Luther and church historians believe that there was an attempt on his life and he was saved right before it happened. It was not God's will that he die that night, but he believed on very good standing that those could have been his final words. And what was his final decision? He would not violate his conscience. This is why it is so important that you learn how your conscience works, how you may need to adjust it. It would be a shame to go to prison or die because you held a conviction based on a misinformed conscience. Think about it that way. If you stand on that type of conviction, think about this. If you stand on that type of conviction that you would lose a job, lose your freedom, lose your life, Based on your conscience, isn't it vitally important to make sure that we have a rightly informed conscience? Because we've already established the conscience can be wrong. Okay? MacArthur says in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, quote, The conscience is generally seen by the modern world as a defect that robs people of their self-esteem. Far from being a defect or a disorder, however, our ability to sense our own guilt is a tremendous gift from God. He designed the conscience into a very, the very framework of the human soul. It is the automatic warning system that tells us, pull up, pull up, before we crash and burn. 
when you sin, you should always be screaming at, uh, your conscience should always be screaming at you to get right with God. But, <laughs> should you always obey your conscience? Say, wait a second, John. Haven't you established that if we disobey our conscience, it is a sin? Go to Romans 14. Go to Romans 14. All right, we're going back to Romans 14. Look at Romans 14, what Romans 14 says. Now, verse number 22. This is Paul talks again to the Roman church about this subject. And in verse 22, he says this. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So, the principle is this. Don't sin against your conscience. Listen to your conscience. You, you know what a catch-22 is? <laughs> you know what a catch-22 is? Catch-22 is where it's like, oh... You're in a you're what you know you don't know which choice to make because either choice could either lead you into a wrong decision. I had a friend in college that gave me this riddle, and it was the craziest riddle about being in a room uh, with two computers. One lies and one tells you the truth, and you have two doors. One door will lead to freedom. One door will lead to the death chamber. And said that you can only ask one computer one question. What question do you ask? to get out of there free. And there is a right answer. You know, that took me forever to figure that out. I did figure it out, though. So now you're not going to be thinking about anything in the message because I gave you that riddle and you're going to try to figure out the answer, right? Okay. If you want to know the answer, come to me afterwards and I'll tell it to you. All right? But if it is a sin to go against your conscience, is your conscience perfectly reliable? The answer to that is No. Say, what is this that we've tied ourselves into? So how do you cultivate a conscience that aligns with God, right? This is the whole idea. Calibrating your conscience. It needs to be done. I hope that I've stressed that so far up to this point that you understand there is a need for this. Okay? So how do you cultivate a conscience that aligns with God? We're in Romans 14, right? Look at verse number 2. He says, for one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Look at verse number 5. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Look at verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. We have three different issues here and two different people that handle those issues differently. In verse 2, you have the person who eats all kinds of food. But then you have the person in his weak conscience. That person has a strong conscience. You have a person in their weak conscience that eats only vegetables. All right, in verse number 5, you have a, the issue is, is holy days. You have the person in the strong conscience makes no distinction between which days are better than others. But then you have a person in their weak conscience values some holy days better than others. And then verse 21, you have, he says, eat and drink. You have uh, 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 J.D. Crowley and Andy Nacelli said this as the issue of wine. He said the strong 
drink and eat, partake, and the weak esteem, or, uh, uh, abstain from it. And so we have issues like this even today, where we have taken issues, and a lot of times, can I say this, the fault of this lies squarely behind the guys behind the pulpit most times, because they abuse this pulpit and say things that aren't here, and it, and it, it influences the people in the, in the chairs and the pews in their conscience. And so then you've created a category that the Bible doesn't speak about explicitly as being something as a sin. And so therefore, if you violate that in your own conscience, you are sinning, but it's not a sin to do that thing. Is it a sin to eat meat? Praise God, no, it's not. <laughs> I love some meat, okay? But you have some, especially in this day and age, that believed it was. And how did the Bible describe that? It described them as what? Weak conscience. A weak conscience. So where, here's my question. Where do we want our conscience? Do we want it strong or do we want it weak? We want it strong. So I guess the question comes to, how do we strengthen our conscience? Therefore, the conscience needs to be calibrated. When I use the word calibrate, we understand it in its context, like calibrating a scale or calibrating a clock. I'm not going to use that illustration. Okay. Uh, when I get into a car at the car lot, there's always like, there's a lot of them's dead. And every time I get in there, I have to change the time. It bugs me. Okay, <laughs> because the time is not as like, so I, I look at my phone and I always change the clocks. They pick on me at work because they're like, John, we have a car, doesn't have a clock set right. And so I go over there and I set up the clock right and everything. All right, so we think of that idea of calibrating. Calibrating is aligning an instrument with a standard to ensure that it is functioning accurately. Let me say that again. It is aligning an instrument with a standard to ensure that it's functioning accurately. So if we want to calibrate our conscience, the conscience is the instrument. What do we use to, as the standard to make sure that it's functioning properly? The Word of God. Your conscience, we establish this, can change. Let me say this. Your conscience should change. Your conscience should change. Your conscience, number one, your conscience might be more hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Some people think that their mind is broadening, but in reality, their conscience is stretching. Feeding excuses to your conscience is like feeding sleeping pills to a watchdog. Next thing, your conscience might follow the standards of other people, such as your culture, family, or spiritual leaders. You simply go with the flow without thinking through issues. Number three, your conscience might conform more to truth, especially the truth of God's Word. So lastly, number three, how do we calibrate our conscience? Romans 4.23 But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he eats. He does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. How do we know the difference between sinning against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? First of all, you are sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly and yet you refuse to listen to it. Emphasis on you believe. You must obey your conscience if you believe it's functioning accurately. Let me establish that. All right? You must obey your conscience if you believe it's functioning accurately. 
But don't be completely turned off to somebody challenging your conscience. Remember what that is? It's what you believe is right and wrong. Number two, you are calibrating your conscience when Christ, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through His Scripture that your conscience has been incorrectly warning you about a particular matter. So you decide no longer to listen to your conscience in that matter. How is this done? First of all, calibrate your conscience by educating it with truth. As best you can, try to discern why you hold certain convictions. When we form convictions about what we believe is right and wrong, we must take into account truth in two spheres. Truth inside the Bible and truth outside the Bible. Okay? So is our conscience being affected by outside of the realm of truth? Number two, calibrate your conscience with due process. Alright, so, here's the issue. Say you have something that you've always thought was wrong, now you're being introduced to the idea that it may not be wrong. So you're starting to look and you find out that the Bible actually teaches that it's not wrong. But yet, you still have that feeling, right? It still is like, oh, I'm feeling that conviction. I'm feeling that guiltiness. It takes time. It takes time to strengthen your conscience, to inform it with the truth of God's Word. Alright? So, how are the... The uh, examples of, of calibrating this, first is adding to your conscience. Adding to your conscience. Some, there are some things that we are doing in our lives that we should add to our convictions. There are some things that you are practicing in your everyday life that you probably shouldn't be doing. That your conscience should be speaking to you about. Your conscience may be weak on that end of the spectrum. If that's the case, you need to strengthen it up with the truth of God's Word that convicts you that you shouldn't be doing this or partaking in this. So this is adding to your conscience. The next thing is certainly what we've sort of been, the idea we've been going on, and that is subtracting from your conscience. What is this? Well, it's questions. Here's, uh, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley wrote a book on this where... Uh, some of this material is gathered from. And uh, they compiled a list, right? A list of things that maybe you should be calibrating your conscience to if it is weak in some of these areas. Number one, should you get a tattoo? (laughs) I love the faces when I go through this list. Uh, Number two, is it sinful to use certain instruments in congregational worship? Your conscience may say no. What does the Bible say about it? Uh, Number three, is it sinful to listen to particular styles of music? I grew up in a household where there was only one style of music that was acceptable to listen to with the whole family. And we we actually had a name for it. We called it Bob Jones-style music. That's what we called it. Me and my brothers actually got to the point where we were venturing out there and listening to Southern Gospel. They, they allowed that, but we could not listen to it in front of my parents. They were cool with it as long as we didn't listen to it in front of them. But if they ever caught me with like a Nickelback CD... Yeah, I'm sorry, I just said Nickelback in the pulpit. All right. Um, is it wrong to celebrate certain holidays? 
I was, well, I'm not going to, I keep throwing my family under the bus. I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, is it wrong to celebrate certain holidays? It's funny because some Christians love Christmas but abhor Halloween. And then some Christians, Christians hate Christmas because they say it's, it's pagan in origin but want to celebrate Halloween because it's Reformation Day where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses. Can we not get on the same page, people? <laughs> I say any time that we can get together and celebrate and eat more food, yes. <laughs> Okay, uh, number five, is it sinful for guys to wear jeans? I'm not, I, I thought about throwing in some of those ladies' uh, dress standards, but I'm not a lady, so I was like, let me throw one with the guys that's not normally said. Is it sinful for guys to wear jeans? Some of you are thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Ed, you might have to just go ahead and leave now. You're in jean overalls. Um, no, I actually worked at a camp for three years where um, it was sinful for us, to, like we could not wear shorts in the middle of summer. Okay, and in Arkansas summer, we couldn't wear shorts. The guys couldn't wear shorts, and I actually like lost my temper about this one time <laughs> because there was no campers there that week. It was just the staff guys, and we were going to go to the gym and play basketball that had no air conditioning. And I'm like, "Can I? I don't have any clean wind pants. All I have is blue jeans. Can I just wear shorts? No, you may not wear shorts." I was like, "Oh, this is so stupid." Uh, here are some more areas where your conscience might be need to be calibrated. Uh, watching MMA for entertainment. How to treat Sundays. Dressing modestly. Capitalism versus socialism. Fair trade coffee. I don't know what that is, honestly. I, I, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I have no idea what that is every time I read that on the list. I'm like, what is that? Uh, global warming. Watching particular movies or TV shows at your home. Um, playing video games. Reading Harry Potter, ladies wearing makeup, following the schedule and growing kids God's way. I don't know what that is either. Um, homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics. Um, never mind. All right. Uh, public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschool. Uh, I was listening to a. Uh, <laughs> I was listening to a, a biblical counselor give a lesson about how they had a church split one time. He was a ch- involved in a church. They had a church split because some ladies in the church became so staunch in their belief that homeschool was the only way to go that the families that were sending their kids to public school needed to get right with God, and it split the church. And this guy was sitting there giving his address and talking about how as he has raised three of his kids into adulthood... He had had experienced every single one of them. Sent his kids at one time to public school, sent them once to Christian school, and homeschooled them for a time period. And they turned out okay. Uh, Eating fast food that is unhealthy, unless it's Chick-fil-A. All right. Uh, A church with multiple services or a church with multiple sites. Uh, Christian hip-hop or Christian rap. Uh, body piercings, smoking cigars or pipes. <laughs> Sorry, that was for me. Um, uh, drinking alcohol in moderation, going into debt, dating versus courtship. When should married couples start trying to have children? How many children married couples should have? Practicing daily family devotions, being overweight, <laughs> perpetuating the Santa Claus myth. 
And as I read that list, if those are some of the things, and as I read some of those things, you thought, oh, no, 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 the Bible, that's, that's in the Bible. Maybe we need to do some study. Maybe we need to look and have the Word of God inform or strengthen our conscience in that area. All right, so why am I talking about this this morning? I'm talking about this this morning because we are a church of a collective group of people who all have different things that are important to them. And you're going to start, you're going to meet, you know, as we fellowship, as we grow closer as a church family, you're going to find that some other people are perfectly okay with things that your conscience says is wrong. So what do we do? We follow the principles that, that, that Paul has laid out. If it offends the weaker brother, what? Don't do it. Can I say, just to give a little short snippet on the area of alcohol, I see this a lot as I, as I work with, with brothers and I, I'm in the realm of those coming out of legalism. Okay, A lot of times they begin to understand that, hey, it's okay in their liberty to partake in moderation of alcoholic beverages. And a lot of times what they end up doing is they love to plaster it all over social media. Now, let me say this publicly. I do not have an issue with a brother that finds in their liberty and is okay in their conscience to take a drink for supper at night. But I think that it is highly unwise to then plaster that on social media where you're going to have somebody with a weaker conscience that's probably within your church family get very offended. And then what do we have there? We have a sin issue. We do. Now, I just spent most of the time getting at those with the weaker conscience of how we need to strengthen and recalibrate it, right? But those that have a strong conscience, we have to be very careful that we're not offending the weaker one. Okay? So, in, in closing, what should our attitude toward be concerning our conscience? Number one, God is the only Lord of our conscience. You, your parents, your pastor, your friends, and your government are not the Lord of your conscience. God is. Number two, obey it. Obey it. Listen to it. Number three, if it is insensitive, strengthen it. Number four, if it is oversensitive, recalibrate it. All right, so moving forward, I think that that was something that I was sort of strong on my heart. I wanted to share as we move forward. Um, I have some plans as far as, as getting into uh, the Bible and preaching uh, a book series here in the future. So uh, that is where we're at. Let's close this morning in a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing a consecration hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. But let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You are a great, wonderful, loving Lord. And we come to you this morning a church family, a body of many different individuals who have individual consciences. And we strive to glorify you and praise you and lift up your name as we come together in unity. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will work out in those things where we'll bump up against each other and there will be growing pains. That you help us understand this doctrine of the conscience and the weaker brother. We pray for those that couldn't be here this morning that you'll touch their bodies, touch their lives. We pray for Brother Bob this week and Miss Sylvia. And we pray that you'll touch his heart. 
We pray for all of those that uh, are not with us. We pray that uh, you will have your will and way in their lives. We love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.